Welcome, friends, to episode 300 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we induct the inaugural class of the Adaptation Hall of Fame. So we got to explain what that is. We got to celebrate episode 300. Uh, a little bit to do here, just setting up this episode. Do you want to talk a little bit about this Hall of Fame idea, James, while I pour myself a glass of whiskey to celebrate? Sure, sure. So uh, thank you, everyone who's come along on the journey. 300 episodes feels like a surreal number, massive number. What we're going to do now, we have ink to film. This is my adaptation malt. That's what I call this. So uh, basically what we're doing here is we've been running this podcast for seven years now, and we feel that we have some level of authority to kind of pinpoint what makes a great adaptation. And our idea is, if you're familiar with Hall of Fames in sports leagues like the NFL, five years after someone has retired or we have covered a project, that person or, in this case, project will become eligible to, to join our Hall of Fame. And so we did yeah. some deliberation in our bonus episode this past month, and we narrowed down all of the first basically season and a half to about six projects. Yeah, so it, it's everything. Um, we're recording this on February 13th. So I said anything from February 13th of 2019 and before was eligible. And that actually ended up being quite a few because we started back in like 2017. Yeah. So it ended up being quite a few projects were available. And there's a lot of bangers in here that I think are, are fully deserving of making it to the Hall of Fame. Um, and we narrowed that that list down from 10 um, to, to six. And that's what we've come here with today. We have six titles, but there are only three slots. So we are going to deliberate on that. And uh, much like the Hall of Fame uh, in the NFL, our idea is that just because something doesn't make it in in its first pass, um, you know, next year, 50 episodes from now, we can celebrate again with a new class. And at that time, the three that uh, didn't make it in, uh, you know, they could potentially still be in the top six. You know, it depends on what new things become eligible, but it could be an ongoing thing that could be fun. Um, and that's as we continue to build our list of like the greatest adaptations to ever do it. And, and that's the idea is we want these to be the sort of untouchable uh, exemplars of, of just excellence in adaptation. And uh, based off of our, you know, experience covering adaptations now for seven, eight years. And we feel, like I said, some level of authority. This is not yeah. the end all be all. But as far as we're concerned, it's going to be. Um, it's, right. <laughs> there's going to be some level of bias because we are individual yeah. people and we are not a hive mind. So yeah. like we're going to come in with some history with the material, that sort of thing. But we're going to do our best to really pinpoint what makes them special and what you know warrants these three projects that we're narrowing it down to. What warrants them being in this prestigious hall? Yeah, it's a celebration. You know, we're celebrating 300 episodes. We're celebrating a bunch of just excellent movies. Um, we did decide, I sh we should also put that caveat out there, we decided not to do TV shows yet. Um, at some point, we may induct a class of TV. Um, and there's some amazing TV adaptations out there. There's a bunch of amazing ones we've covered. But we just felt that the form was different enough to where it wasn't really fair to pit them against each other. They're not facing the same limitations on time. There's just certain things that are a little different and it's kind of a separate animal. So we're leaving that separate for now. And I love this opportunity because we were different people at the beginning of this podcast. I feel <laughs> like it's safe to say. So like Absolutely. to think back to us covering these, we get to dip back in some of these two, one of them I hadn't seen since the time that we covered it, which was, you know, five, six years ago. And, uh, you know, it's great to revisit with the knowledge that we've built up as far as adaptations and more experience. And then in our professional lives, 
as a writer and as a filmmaker, kind of bring, continuing to bring that in and reevaluating it now to say like, did we like, we liked it a lot back then and we think we like it, but let's see if it can, if it can, you know, clash with these other ones and, and make yeah. it in. How does it hold up now that it's also stood the test of time? Because we like the idea of that five year cooling off period. So we won't have any like extreme recency bias and, you know, of, of wanting to put something in that we just covered and really loved and haven't had that proper perspective on it. So the other thing I want to get out of the way here early, I have uh, come up with a series of, I don't know, ra- like a rating system. Metrics, right? Say. A metrics. metric. Thank you. Yeah. Series of metrics. Um, and this is not something that James did. This is just something I did. Um, I divided it into three different uh, pillars of adaptation. For one, uh, number one is the expression. So how well a film expressed the core concepts, you know, certain scenes, like something about the book that just came out really, really well on the other end in the film. And that's on a scale from one to 10. Number two pillar, the changes. What did they change from the book to the movie that actually worked really well and improved it? What was a really smart change that made it work as a visual medium, right? Like those kind of things. I think that's a hallmark of a great adaptation as well, because we've seen all kinds of different adaptations over the years work in different ways. I think that's a great way to do it. So that's going to be equally valued in my metric. And then my, my final sort of pillar is just the end result. How good of a movie was it on a scale from one to 10? And because uh, I think that matters too, right? Like just where you're watching a movie, it needs to be a great movie to be in this hall. Um, even if you did a bunch of really smart changes and, and you know, express the book really well, if the end movie wasn't like excellent, it's probably not going to make the Hall of Fame. So that's where we're at. Um, that's where I'm at with my three. I did include the option for two bonus points. Here they are. So I, I awarded a bonus point if I deemed that the film in question was somehow like, revolutionary, groundbreaking, significant for the medium, for movies going forward, for storytelling. If it like, you know, hits that sweet spot of just being like hugely important, I gave it a bonus point. The other one I did, and it's just because performance matters so much to me, is if it includes a truly iconic single performance. Now it could have more than one, but at least one absolutely standout, career-defining, super memorable performance, I would also give this one an additional point. So that's where I'm at with my ratings, although I'm not going to reveal my ratings until towards the end of the episode when we're making our cuts, but those are coming eventually. Yeah, we're first going to talk about like what we felt, because the the big part is here, we both rewatched three of the movies each. So we are kind of coming into this having just watched these movies again, and we have fresh takes and we have some points, and I think we're going to put them up uh, kind of on display and say, this is this film and this is why I think it deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And then we work We're gonna through make the them, case. make the case, and then work through all six of them. Then we will deliberate. Okay, so I think it's time to launch into it. Oh, I did want to say this uh, this whiskey that I'm drinking, this adaptation malt, it's from my Infinity Bottle where I've been adding little bits of the whiskey that I get over the years. And I started this in 2018. So this is this whiskey is almost as old as far as like how long I've been making the bottle. It's even older because a lot of the malts are old. But um so it's a unique blend that only exists in my house. So if you yeah. ever come over, I'll pour you a glass. <laughs> That's very cool. <laughs> um, I like it too. Like adaptation blend, you're, you're adapting someone else's yeah. work in ways and, and creating yeah. your own unique thing there. And uh, this is my unpeated one. I do have, if I get to this point in the, in the episode, I have a peated version as well, as well which I called the uh, Everlasting Inkling because it's full of peat and chemicals and smoke and all the good stuff. So uh, yeah. that'll be my second pour we get there. 
All right, so first up, I'm going to start. We're going to bounce back and forth, and I'm just going in the order in which I viewed these. Um, so, you know, no bias here as, as far as order goes. So the first movie I watched for this episode was Jurassic Park, the 1993 Steven Spielberg film adapted from the 1990 book by Michael Crichton. Um, this was a such a fun project for us to cover and such an iconic film. It's by one of our like greatest living directors who is renowned across the world, right? Um, he invented the modern blockbuster. We talked about this a little bit on our deliberations where we were debating whether or not to put Jurassic Park up or Jaws up. And I love the point you made where you said that you felt like a lot of what he did in Jaws so well, and that could be a potential Hall of Famer in the, in the future, he perfected in this movie. Um, and I agree with that. This, this movie is perfect in many ways. Um, it is such a smart change. The book itself was more sprawling. It had a lot of subplots that ended up getting pushed into later movies. We see a lot of them return in The Lost World. We see some of them even in the third movie. Um, but it felt like really smartly Spielberg focused in on this island and this tale of the, you know, dinosaurs getting out and the, you know, the way that represents like humans playing God and hubris and how we need to be sort of more respectful of the natural world. Um, and, and, and it's sort of more a more contained story. Um, whereas the book, it, it had a lot more to do with breaking containment. The book starts out with dinosaurs have already gotten off the island <laughs> and we're seeing them. They're on like other islands attacking people. And like the whole book is about like, can we even keep this contained now? Or is it going to spread? Um, and we get into that stuff in the later movies, but like that's not really present in this first movie because I think Spielberg really wanted to focus in on this one question. Um, should this have even been attempted, right? Um, and it's really fascinating done. But then on top of all of that, it's just like the great, blockbuster it's like one of the greatest to ever be done i have a lot more i could say about it but i want to give you a chance to talk about it because i know you also love this movie oh yeah uh this is one of those movies that you know growing up it's not quite terrifying enough to where like you can't watch it as a kid but it's scary enough to really put you on edge and i watch this movie absolutely endlessly i i yeah. swear this is in my top five most watched movies of all time same and it it, and I think the really cool thing is that while it's it's pointing out the hubris of man and what science can do if not treated correctly, it also got me interested and excited about science and paleontology and the, both the past and the future. I'm never going to forget the feeling of seeing raptors and seeing the T-Rex and some of those iconic scenes with John Williams score. I just it means so much to me. And yeah, maybe if I had watched Jaws as much around the same time, I would have felt similarly. But as I said, as I made the point, and then you also repeated uh, <laughs> Jurassic Park, it, it is that that distilled version. Like it's it's yeah. he's taken everything. He has these incredible performances. Like, of course, Jaws has the three massive performances. Every character in this movie is memorable and unique and captivating and every yeah. scene is so important and then there's so much baked into the richness of the film the way that spielberg tells the story visually and um you know leaves some clever little hints around for for eagle-eyed viewers so many good little details like and that's just something that you know i, I don't want to i don't want to make broad generalizations about the modern blockbuster because that does make me sound a bit like an old man but at, at you know the median film 
that comes out these days that's a blockbuster. It just doesn't have this attention to detail, this like clever little bits of storytelling, the the innovation that is on display in this movie. It, it's something that I think filmmakers should aspire more to, and Spielberg just does it so well here. Um, I also loved a lot of the changes made to the characters. Um, Richard Attenborough playing playing Hammond was a just a brilliant change to have this like complete asshole megalomaniac billionaire dickhead in the book um, who gets his like, you know, comeuppance eventually um, instead make him this really complex character who we really like, even as he's doing awful things. And even as he is, uh, you know, responsible and his hubris is like on display yet. He's, he's such a warm grandfatherly figure here. And he has a really interesting arc where by the end, he, he sort of denounces his creation, yeah. um, which this is a great point to say that we're also going to speak spoilers, at least in some <laughs> terms for all of these. So be, be aware of that. To speak about a recent project, he's kind of a Willy Wonka-esque figure. Like he's created, he, he has this, this wonderland. He's so excited about it. He's so excited to push the envelope forward and he can only see the good side before it's happening. And I know it's not quite one-to-one -one with Wonka, but that idea of like, He's so he, his vision is so strong. He wants this to happen no matter what it takes. And ultimately, maybe realizing he doesn't know everything. I think Wonka has a bit of that as well. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and but all the characters like Grant is so much more interesting in the movie than he was in the book. Malcolm, uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm, like absolutely iconic performance. And, and this character just leaps off the screen whereas he's a little bit more forgettable in the book or, yeah. you know, just not quite as interesting. Of course, the and, chaos theory is super, is super important to the story and the whole idea of nature and chaos being, you know, leading the storm that hits the Island. Like it all is so thematically resonant. Um, uh, but, you know, I just, I, I'm giving so much credit for change, smart changes made for this one. Um, and then, yeah, I got to talk a little bit about that T-Rex scene because to me, this is the scene from the movie. There's a bunch of great scenes from this movie. But I think if you're going to pick one, it's the T-Rex escaping the enclosure and attacking the Jeeps. And it is just like, it changed movies forever. The moment that T-Rex stepped out, it raised that bar so high that all of a sudden people were like, holy shit, this is what is possible with CGI. And, and the way that he blended CGI with practical effects to keep that illusion, that... I can't believe that this movie came out in 1993 and I was watching it this week and I'm like, this scene is scary. It looks amazing. And the way he blends the two together is so compelling. Like with having the pupil dilate when he shines the flashlight in it, when uh, Grant initially lights the flare, the, the actual puppet like looks up and like roars at him. Um, and then he transitions to CGI. But because you had that real moment of seeing that terrifying face, it works. And then we can see the movement that the CGI allows using rain to hide some of the flaws that are in the CGI. So smart. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the best films ever made, in my opinion, and it, it imprinted on me at a young age, for sure. So I remember uh, fleeing to the bathroom from the theater and making my mom take me out because I was so terrified. It yeah. wasn't until the home release where I finally actually watched that, that scene in its entirety because I was just so terrified at eight years old. So I, I, clearly a foundational movie for me since it like semi-traumatized -tra me in the theater. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you talked about innovation too, right? Like blending old Hollywood tricks with new ones, right? And what, yeah. what we see today, obviously, and, and how seamless that was at, at times. And I mean, just the majesty of some of these scenes, like the moment when they, they see the first, I think it's a Brachiosaurus, right? Brontosaurus, a, I think. The long necky ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The moment they see the it, sunglasses off the yeah. reveal and this like the pan over to it and the music, and the music. 
Unbelievable. So uh, this is just one of the best to ever do it. Um, a lot of really smart changes here. So many iconic moments. Like you talked about it being frightening. I was surprised at how frightening it was on a rewatch, even though I've seen it a million times. I'm like, this movie is like genuinely horrifying. The tension holds up. And the fact that it was still aimed at children, um, like me, eight-year-old me, there was a reason my mom thought it would be okay for me to go watch. And then we get there and it's like a pretty fucking terrifying movie at times. Yeah. Off the heels of like a, an E.T., you think like, oh, Spielberg movie. <laughs> exactly. Uh, dinosaurs. How scary could it really be? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, man, those, and the, again, I, the fascination that I feel with dinosaurs and like growing mm -hmm. up reading fantasy and, and enjoying that kind of stuff and knowing that these creatures walk the earth and like what that means and seeing them on screen in that way, it, it just lifelong fascination with dinosaurs probably mostly from this movie yeah same i know we talked about that in our coverage i've had a lot of listeners who've who've said that those are among their favorite episodes of ours is wow. the jurassic yeah. park episodes and that's really cool to hear so um yeah we talk about them a lot more in depth there uh we got to move on though to keep this thing moving what was the first movie you watched first one i watched was the longest one i watched which was fellowship of the ring the extended edition long history on the podcast of talking about peter jackson's films um, some were the Hobbit films and some were these these Lord of the Ring films. And I, I mentioned before, I was always fascinated with films. I always was so drawn to them and it was definitely my hobby, but it was Fellowship of the Ring that really showed me like this is a career path, especially with the appendices and the, the extra material that came out eventually and getting to see the behind the scenes. I don't think anything will ever be made like this again and nothing was up to this point. And I think it owes to some another movie that I watched and even to Jurassic Park in terms of the blending of the CGI with the practical effects. And I think that this still stands, Fellowship still stands as the greatest fantasy adaptation of all time. It reignited a fantasy market, I think, for both novels and films, specifically adaptations of fantasy works. And um, I mean, you just you don't get Game of Thrones without this. There's just so, so many things along the way that that this set up and to take this big of a swing to make three films in New Zealand all at the same time is basically in isolation with an incredible cast really show off New Zealand in a way it hadn't been in films before and put it on the map as a kind of a filmmaking mecca now a film at least a film mecca um, and Howard Shore's score. I, I'm, I'm going to say a lot about this film, so I'll let, yeah. you, I'll let you jump in here. <laughs> I'll just jump in and say we talked about whether or not we were going to say Lord of the Rings as a trilogy or individual movies, and we decided individual movie because I think rightfully so, the more I've thought about it, because this movie had to, like, it had so much expectation and so much behind it. They had already filmed the next two movies, you know? They had to be so confident in the, in the movie they were going to put into theaters that it was going to blow people away and it was going to be a success. Otherwise, this whole thing could have crashed and burned. Um, and just the amount of confidence they had in making this movie, and that Peter Jackson, the vision he had, such smart changes were made. People celebrate Tom Bombadil in the books, um, and he's an interesting character, sure, but he doesn't fit in this movie, rightfully cut. Like, there's so many sm smart things, like truncating this really just long timeline from the book where like 17 years passes after Gandalf gives Frodo the ring before they leave the Shire. Like there's that sense of urgency that is so important. I think for the, like this three hour movie to work um, is, is, three, is essential three, and three and a half hours, three and a half hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it depending is on which version I'm, you're watching. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like when I always forget how long it is, I don't mind how long it is, but when I go yeah. to start it, I'm like, Holy shit, let me check my schedule and make sure that this, yeah. this still fits in. And I got to I got to shout out one of the smartest changes that he made. Boromir does not die 
at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, he dies at the start of the Two Towers. Right. And Peter Jackson very correctly identified that is a great moment to end this movie on. And what a powerful one. I tear up every time it happens when he's every given time. his final words to Aragorn. I, I have to say, too, w growing up, that the men were not the thing I was interested in, in in Lord of the Rings. Right? I was interested in the elves. I was interested in the mm. dwarves. I was interested in all of that. But I would say somewhere along the line, as I matured some, you know, I'd say a teenager, I realized that that is one of the most interesting stories going on here, right? Because it's yeah. it's about the time of men coming about with the elves leaving and the dwarves being killed off, I guess, basically. Keying in on the relationship of Aragorn and, and Boromir gives such a, a layer to this. And, and yeah, to really have that be the through line and kind of a culmination. I did want to say here too, like there are movies where there's a few characters that you love. Every single character is important in this film. Every single one draws your attention. And part of that is the performances. Part of that is Peter Jackson, Philippa Boyens, and Fran Walsh understood the material in a way that they were able to change things and know that they were still sticking to the essence of, of J.R.R. Tolkien. And I think a lot of people, without reading them and watching them back to back, would assume that this is incredibly faithful because of how beloved it is and how much people, people um, you know, stand by it. So it's almost this weird situation where as much as they changed, it is almost a one-to-one -one adaptation. They cut things and moved orders but yeah. in 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 the all the sense of the word, they adapted exactly what was in the book. At least at least spiritually, right? Um, yeah. I I think uh, Aragorn's journey is a little different because they really focused in on him having doubts about becoming a king one day. Sure. Um, whereas in the book, he has he has Endurl from the beginning, or he has uh, Narsil, which then becomes Endurl. He has it gets forged in Rivendell, like mm -hmm. when he when they get there, like. It's much earlier. He seems much more already on board with becoming a king, and he's just got to convince people. And instead, they they made that a, like more of a character arc for him of like, yeah. do I actually want this? Can't do I deserve it? Um, and I think that's a great change. So there is some really really smart changes. And then one of the things that they nail that I thought they had to, you're talking about just moments. I don't know that there's any more important moment to the all of the Lord of the Rings than the "You shall not pass" moment where Gandalf faces down the Balrog. On that it's at least the, one of the most exciting moments of all time. There's, I think there's other moments of emotion, but it's it is stunning. It's it's like you think about the think about the art that has been made from that scene, like the 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 vision of the of the wizard and the explosion from the staff and face of this giant demon, yeah. where Gandalf finally shows like the power that he has and what he represents. Um, but then he falls, and the heartbreak of that, and the boldness to do that, right? Like, yeah, he comes back later, but. That moment is heartbreaking, and it, it, it that makes me tear up when I watch this movie. There's a couple times where I'm like guaranteed to tear up, and like Absolutely. their reaction to losing Gandalf is is so so emotional. Well, and it does feel um, like the fellowship was lost at that point because he was the guide all, all along the way. But I find myself too like the there it's the quiet moments in Lord of the Rings that I come back yeah. to often. It's it's the line that like Gandalf gives to Frodo. Basically, Frodo says, you know, I wish the ring had never come to me, and and you know, I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, like. So do all of those who who live to see times like this. That messaging is so it's yeah. so impactful, and like the, the 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 through line of the film and the everyman that Frodo represents, and I, I just there's so much and and Sam and the hobbits in general. How many amazing quotes from Tolkien made it into the movie? And that's what you're talking about right there. Just incredible writing. Totally. Um, really captured the essence of the book while changing it into more of an action movie. Like I think that's not you know, debatable at this point. It's definitely much more action focused. Yeah. But I think that works in film. That's one of the reasons what people want to see movies. And I think Peter Jackson knew that. And I think early on here in these movies, um, he had a he had a 
great sense for like how much to do and and um you know maybe maybe started to lose his way later especially in the hobbit films which we, we have talked <laughs> but um you know this one it's, it's just right to me this is the perfect blend and yeah we get a little bit of crazy some crazy action when they fight the cave troll and they're in the you know moria running around fighting all the goblins but like it's, it's not so over the top. It's really, really good. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, even even Boromir basically falls to an Urukai, right? Like, I, you can't imagine one of the mainline characters getting bested by, like, something like that later on. But, like, here early, like, there's still enough danger in the world. It's it's so, I, I don't know. It's it's such yeah. a such an excellent movie. I, I think it is my favorite of the three. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing one. The intricacies of the costuming, the special effects from mm. Weta Workshop and the costuming and, the, and the, all of the stuff that they created, all of these orcs. Staggering. It's unbelievable. They had an army of people doing it. And today they just do it with CG because it would be much yeah. easier. And they, the they it was the perfect time. Yeah, the perfect time where they did both. They had a lot of people there, and then to sell the scale, often they would they would switch to some CGI elements, and they, and it was at the cutting edge of it. And I think yeah. that I can't you can't give this movie credit for it, but when we when you see the motion capture of Gollum in in the later films, it is still to this day possibly one of the greatest like CG fully CG characters ever because of the emotion that Andy Serkis brings to it. And that's that's a story for two towers, but that, and just in terms of like pushing the envelope and innovating. In a similar way to Jurassic Park, uh, what Jurassic Park was doing. That's what I was going to say is it's like it, it, I'm giving those points to Jurassic Park. I got to give them here, too, because um, and I'm no expert on this stuff, but I, I watch a lot of film breakdown stuff that talks about special effects. And these are both movies that pioneered so many things like these weren't existing things you could do on a computer. They're like, we're going to create a program that can do this. Um, they're building it from the ground up in a way that just it, it's, it's hard to fathom them doing yeah. that and it's not like it's a hokey uh effects driven story necessarily it's a good film with good character driven moments like it's all yeah. of those Talk things about a scene that's that stands up like the balrog scene looks amazing yeah. so good that shoots <laughs> yeah. yeah shrouding it in shadows and and yeah. smoke and flames just knowing that peter jackson also the effort that it took to storyboard and and create animatics and create the entire film before getting on a set in these un in unbelievable locations in new zealand um, it's just unbelievable and it'll never be done again in this way. There will be films that have this level of effort, but this is just a, a really unique moment in film history. Totally agree. My next movie I watched was Blade Runner. So this nice. was the 1982 adaptation uh, by directed by Ridley Scott of the 1968 Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, this is only my second time seeing this movie all the way through. This was a really fun rewatch to me. Um, it, it, as far as like seeing things I didn't see, like understand, I feel like I understand this movie more now. Mm -hmm. um, even as it is, it is a very um, one of my takeaways was like, this is a weird movie. This yeah. is a incredibly heady movie. This has a ton from the audience. It it does not hold your hand. It like there's so much about it where it's asking you to be thinking deeply about what you're seeing and, and, and approaching it with like the best possible intentions. Um, it asks that of you. And um, I think a lot of times if people don't, if they bounce off of this movie, it, for one, you might be expecting something that's going to be a little more action heavy because it's really a kind of a slow movie. And then if you don't want to engage with the bigger questions about what it means to be human and what, what uh, a human like Android um, might tell us about ourselves and what it might mean about the human condition. 
Um, and these are all things that are being talked about in this book by Philip K. Dick. If memory serves for me, that book was a lot more about looking at humanity and saying, we're all becoming android-like, we're becoming robotic. And our empathy is what separates us from that and we try and cultivate it, but we get into these routines, we fall into these habits and, and our lives become robotic. And like, ultimately he starts to blur the line between the Andes, which is what they're called in the book, and the human. Uh, and um, it's a fascinating thing that I think points you back to look at yourself and consider like, what am I becoming? And, and, and what do I want to be? What does it mean to be human? What should I be celebrating? What should I be focused on? And I think really Scott took this and he just really masterfully shifted focus a little bit. And he, that's still there, but he was more focused on these androids, these replicants. And what does it mean for them? What is their existence? And what does it mean to have been created by man and be able to face your, your maker in person and to be able to find something pure and beautiful in such a short lifespan? Because the fact that they only live four years is so important to these characters. Um, and, and even that, like, it's, I, I don't know if I'm like fully conveying all of this because it's a very weird movie. And it's a lot of this stuff takes, takes place like, in between, you know, the, the scenes almost, like you got to be thinking yeah. about these deep questions. Well, it, it's almost like there's moments where it's looks from characters and things that you're inferring about yeah. the human condition, about trying to say like, what makes an android, in this case, replicant, human? Yeah. And you, you're you like, well, if I can't distinguish it in any way, in any sense, where does that line get drawn and kind of what that means? Uh, and yeah, so like what I'm trying to say is Ridley Scott lets the movie breathe and lets you kind of suss out with your own human eyes who you think is replicant and who is not and what it means and if a replicant can ever truly like kind of cross that threshold and be treated as an equal. And, you know, Rachel, of course, is, is a great example of that. And then, of course, the ultimate question of whether or not uh, Deckard himself is is a replicant uh, posed by the end. Um, we are, we did watch the final cut for this one, or I, I watched the final cut. That's the one that we went with. Um, we can talk about that more later. There are a bunch of different versions of this movie out there. But... Um, it's just such a weird slow burn of a story, but the thing that really like makes it singular to me too is how foundational this film is for what would become the cyberpunk genre, which is one of my favorite genres. It's like subgenres of science fiction, um, and it it among there was also uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer. Um, you could look at the book itself that was based off of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Although I've heard that argued that that was more of like a proto cyberpunk novel, not not quite. Um, you got Ghost in the Shell. There's a lot of these things that were kind of popping up around similar times, um, but it it was so foundational in the in the sort of genesis of this really influential genre that I give it so much credit for that too. And just like watching the, I love films that employ that 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 world building that that scene storytelling where we're not going to explain why this is happening. It's just going to be left up for you to imagine like, why are these like children riding these bikes in this scene? And like, why is this thing in the background? And what does this even mean? And like, there's so much of that here. It's one of the things I love about children and men, which was not eligible yet, but I'm sure one day we'll talk about (laughs) Um, that, that just using environmental storytelling, this movie does it masterfully. And I really, really love that. Yeah. Moments of silence, moments of just kind of like living in this rainy neon city and walking around eating noodles in the beginning. And I, I just, it feels so well realized for something that's so far away from 1982, right? Like yeah. uh, all of the different set design that goes into this um, and just those characters. Like I, I think about Deckard as a character, as you talked about like iconic 
career defining performances. Like when I think of Harrison Ford, the first thing I think of is Deckard. And that's mm. over Han Solo. You know what I mean? Like that's what that or, means. Or Indiana Jones. <laughs> or Indiana Jones. Like, the man has the man has a bunch. It's funny because I was thinking about that for this one and we'll, I'll get to it. But um, I, I actually focus more on Rutger Hauer oh, and yeah. specifically because of the iconic Tears and Rain sequence, which one of the greatest. If, scenes like of that, all time. that it's one of the great scenes of all time. Yeah. One of the great monologues of all time. It, it's so well shot. It's so beautiful. Just the performance nails it so much. Um, everything about this character who is this killing machine and yet also a four-year-old child in many ways yep. and um, has seen these insane things because it's like done so much in this short span. He's a candle that has burned so bright, but in this moment chooses to save Deckard's life rather than kill him, yep. knowing even that his life is ending. Um, it's just a beautiful moment. Holding the pigeon is such a strange, like the, this, this, you know, white dove, I guess is what it is. Um, it's so cool, like choosing peace. It's an android or a replicant interacting with the real world in that way and appreciating yeah. the real world and seeing it for what it means and really understanding what it means to be human and then feeling that it's not fair these shorter lifespans and how you know how that and, kind and of... that speaks to us right because even humans like we you know it, it, cosmically we have very short lifespans and so even as we can look at it's like heightened by the four-year lifespan but like that says something about ourselves and finding purpose in our own lives matter of perspective um, right it's like you, it just you, feels so profound it's it's one of those things that it's so rare to find that in a movie that's the thing about that final scene that i was going to say is it's poetry it's it's yeah. taking the final scene the 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 obviously there's a climactic battle and ending leading up to this but then really the end of the movie is this poetic yeah moment where he's able to kind of articulate the entire idea of the film is all in, yeah. is all in this in this speech here at the end. And think about how easy it would have been for the, you know Ridley Scott to think Rick Deckard has to kill Roy Batty here at the end. He's the final bad guy. He's going to just best him in a final act of just action, you know, showdown. Yeah. And that is not what happens. Roy Batty like gets the better of Deckard and Deckard's about to fall to his death and he saves his life and then just dies after giving one of the most iconic speeches of all the movies. So it's just like the fact that he just chose to do that is unbelievable. That's not in the book. So we're talking about changes that are just amazing. Um, so many were made. This is one where it's like, you could almost say more inspired by than a direct adaptation, but there is, a, it owes a lot to the book, but it changes the plot dramatically. And I think uh, some of the changes and the majority of the changes are absolutely brilliant. Um, and and I think uh, absolutely deserving as, as being considered for our Hall of Fame. Um, all right, so I'm going to move on to my next film that I watch. And uh, fittingly, this movie came out the same year, the same mm. week, the same day that Blade Runner came out in 1982. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> June 25th, 1982, uh, science fiction film released in theaters, and it was overshadowed by E.T. Can you name the film? No, because there's two. It's The Thing and Blade Runner. They were both released and they both bombed at the box office because of the massive success of E.T. Again, tying this into Steven Spielberg here. So um, yeah. The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, possibly one of the most fascinating alien films ever put to screen. Uh, and it doesn't sell it as that, right? It's called The Thing. Uh, yeah. You know, people coming into that movie didn't know what it was about. You're like, okay, it's got Kurt Russell. It's the thing. Clearly, something weird's going on with this Arctic base. Or, you know, probably more than anything, because Carpenter's reputation at that point, he'd already done Hall Halloween, right? Right. Um, based off the John W. Campbell short story from written in 1938, and then also uh, there was another film, The Thing from Another World, in the 50s. That Correct. We have also covered. 
it's the film that we just talked with Paul Tremblay last episode. It's a film that bit, yeah. is steeped in, in ambiguity, right? There's ambiguity, especially the ending here. Mm-hmm. But the, I, I love the sense of paranoia that John Carpenter creates throughout the film and how in really cool storytelling, both the people in that are involved are dangerous to each other and the the creature is a, a danger to them so as the story progresses there's a creature they don't know who to trust they start turning on each other even when they're not infected be just because of the idea the paranoia that one of them could be um and you know there's the fam- there's the scene with the doctor just destroying all the communications equipment he's knocking out the helicopter all this stuff he's isolating them because he's realizing that this could spread to the you know mass population throughout the throughout the world and, and basically in the world in I think like three years. Groundbreaking practical effects. It stands up to this day some of the most grotesque things I've ever seen. Tentacles yeah. flying around, green and yellow blood. It heads is vile, off. man. It is, <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is so gross. And it is so fascinating to look That's at. That's why this movie's not going to be for everyone. But it yes, is, uh, it's amazing. But if you want to look at something that just is unlike anything you've seen before, especially up to that this point in filmmaking in 1982. John Carpenter's the thing. It's it is, I mean, I I trot it out all the time as one of my favorite horror films. It is it's tense. The score is haunting. It's so simple. And Neo Morricone, um, it's it's so simple and it's just like pulses at times, and the way that 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 builds all this anticipation and dread. The scene with the blood where they're testing blood wire in the blood yeah that was the one i wanted to point out too love that scene such a good scene it this film is captivating i watched this with my brother he hadn't seen it before and oh, nice he he at times can be distracted by other things he was sucked in the entire time right every single scene that's playing out is 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 pulling you in it's enticing it's uh yeah it's captivating and yeah. you progress totally along with... dismissed by critics of the time by the way they yeah. they thought this movie was awful you get these unique characters and that's one of the main things that i'm realizing from all of my films is that character work is incredible everybody is right. so unique you have McCree. one of the best yeah one of the best changes from the book too because i remember that book like they were pretty interchangeable it was just a bunch of dudes they they went mad and in interesting ways but like they themselves were not very distinct distinguishable from each other <laughs> and even mccready only kind of becomes the main character towards the end and he's not really that interesting in the book either yeah um and they, they completely changed that for the film it's so it's so great just dialogue great dialogue where you you know who people are right away they're not archetypal they're they're they feel three-dimensional and like the way that they talk to each other they feel like they've been on this base for a long time together they respect one another and then at times clash with one another and um man it, i once once the the real tension takes off and, and the dogs are getting killed by this creature which is horrifying yeah. um uh and then it's it's loose in the building and you just don't know where it's at um from there on i mean it's it's like an hour and 40 minutes it feels like it's 20 minutes long it flies by and in a great way uh, and then it culminates in this amazing uh, final scene childs and mccready are sitting across from one another and they're trying to decide if the other is is a thing because yeah. they've killed off everything else they've blown up the base everything's there and and then it's this moment where you sit and think and you're like does it matter and you're that that Neither do they kill each other. One, does it matter if they kill each other, or because they could both be human, or are they going to just let themselves freeze to death, and then this thing is still going to be out there for some rescue team to eventually find? It's a beautiful, uh, ambiguous ending. And you're talking about like the magic of ambiguous endings, because like yeah, it matters, but like ultimately the movie stops before it tells us. That way we can kind of decide 
for ourselves what we think is the most likely, what we want to happen, you know, and it's something that you just think about. Like you're, I'm always thinking about what happens next and mm-hmm. not in a way that frustrates me, but in a way that intrigues me. Yeah. Um, I got a, a couple of highlights of just things that they changed uh, book to movie that I think are, are fantastic. For one, the entire Norwegian camp doesn't exist in the book. That was an invention by Carpenter. And I think it works so well because there's this added layer of horror of them seeing some other camp that got completely wiped out and burned. And there's like an ax embedded in the wall and like something really horrific clearly happened there. And we don't know what it is. And that sets up so much of a, of the dread of like what's coming, but just really smartly done. Especially because it all happens to them. Like almost everything yeah. happens to them exactly, exactly. In, in the same way. So, you yeah. know, we're getting to see it play out and you're like, holy shit, this is why those Norwegians blew everything up and we're coming after them, the, the dog on a helicopter. Um, you men, you mentioned how it un- underperformed too. And I just definitely want to highlight the fact that like both Blade Runner and this film, while they didn't do well in the theaters, as time has gone on, especially with Blade Runner's uh, director, final director's cut and like some of the, the ways that Ridley Scott was able to regain creative control with that film. And with the thing, the cult following that built up with these and then now exists yeah. and holds them in the pantheon of greatest movies of all time. There's something to that that I think doesn't really happen as much anymore. And also like that's in my mind, I didn't do points, but that's a bonus point to me because that just speaks to like the quality that people wanted to share it around. And it was just word of mouth that brought this film into relevancy. And it's really stunning, right? And yeah. I, I w- I'd like to, I'd like to think that that could still happen today. I could think of some to movies extent, that maybe yeah. like, you know, we, we talk about how we both love Annihilation, maybe the Green Knight. Like there are movies that like some people love, some people didn't like. And I could see some of them improving over time. Maybe like people start to revisit them and go, well, actually, this is really incredible. I like to think that as well. But I think I think I mean, like the length of time that it took for it to, to yeah. be held in high esteem is maybe longer than it would be today. And that paranoia that we've talked about is is, I think, also one of the most brilliant things that Carpenter did. I think it's what he saw in the original story that didn't make it into the thing from another world, which is, by the way, is a movie he really liked. But that movie doesn't include anybody being turned into a thing. It just includes a monster. Mm -hmm. It's a monster movie. And he likes the movie a lot, but he's like, the story had all of these people being transformed. And I want to do that. And he realized that there was more story to tell there and rightfully went back and and, and attempted another adaptation of a movie that he even liked, but said, I'm going to bring something else to it. Um, and you know, it's absolutely incredible. It's such a smart thing to do. And he, he put his, he put his very specific spin on it too. We always talk about like a very, you know, a singular vision from a director. Like this is a very Carpenter movie mm-hmm. and yet it's, it is like the best version of it. Um, and you know, it, again, I love it when, uh, somebody can take, I mean, maybe this is controversial. I don't know, but like somebody can take like some story that was written by just a terrible human being who was a huge racist in his time. And, um, maybe he was influential in the world of sci-fi, but just h- horrific personal views um, and take it and make it into uh, this movie that that is this, so much better in, in, in many ways than that original source, even if a lot of it does owe um, to that original idea. Like, I, I, I think that's cool. And we'll leave the thing here, but I do have to shout out Rob Botton because he's the person who brought the disgusting transformations to life through use of puppetry, animatronics and prosthetics. And um, yeah, that that it'll stick with me for my whole life and I'll watch it maybe every Halloween uh, just because it's like, it is, it's getting into that time of year, the isolated cold nature mm-hmm. of it. And then that, that special effects work. Like I just, it makes me feel sick to my stomach and I love it. So influential too. I mean, talk about like the most recent season of uh, true detective yeah. heavily inspired by it. Like absolutely there's a lot of really, just really cool stuff with that, but we got to get into the next one here. Um, and it's a little movie 
called The Godfather <laughs> that I watched. Um, <laughs> never heard, never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what can we say about this movie um, that is widely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time? I saw that it was ranked number two behind only Citizen Kane um, by like the American Film Institute or something like as like the great second greatest film ever made. <laughs> um, and it is it is uh, unbelievable. It's stunning. I had only ever seen it all the way through when we covered it on the podcast originally with Fonda Lee as a, a special guest. So a, a really amazing episodes. Love those episodes. Um, we read this book by Mario Puzo, written in 1969, quickly adapted 1972 by Francis Ford Coppola into just, just an incredible, incredible, iconic, legendary film. Um, now, I will say, like, I don't want to be one of those people who wants to say that, like, you have to love The Godfather, and if you don't, you're wrong. Because there is enough stuff in here to be objectionable, It's fun, you know, and I don't think that's true. I think that's a little bit of a snooty film, bro, um, sort of thing to say. Um, but I did, I do love it, and I, and, and I, um, I found a new appreciation for it watching it a second time, um, because I, I just really could get into all the little details the the way everything was framed we had just covered misery in which i complained about it being a bit bright the whole time this movie does not suffer from that problem you know directed well before that and there's so much you know so many dark rooms that these characters are in um and how um how how just the use of light and dark is so modern this movie looks like it was made recently in in many ways even as it was itself a period piece for the time because it was made in the 70s but it was depicting the 40s um so so well done um and then talk about legendary performances uh I, you know the one i'll highlight is marlon brando as as uh, the godfather is vito corleone but of course you could talk about al pacino as michael corleone you could talk about you know tom hagan like there's so many amazing performances mm-hmm. here you can go down the line the amount of oscars these this cast has won throughout their careers is incredible um but you know i think vito corleone is the thing that really makes this movie it's the he's the heart of this movie in many ways. Um, I think one of the best changes made by the director was to focus a little bit more on him and make him a little more likable than he is in the book. In the book, um, specifically with the character of Luca Brasi and how awful that character is um, and how evil that character is, um, they omit some of that stuff. It's hinted that he's very formidable, but we don't see like the really dastardly shit he does in the book to where, you know, Again, every little choice is made, like holding the cat at the, in the introduction, like um, the way he treats his family, how much he cares about respect. He's just such a likable guy at the heart of this crime syndicate. He's such yeah. a conflicting character, and he just commands every room he's in. He gives these long monologues throughout the movie that like shouldn't work, and yet they are some of the best ever done. And a lot of that dialogue is right out of the book. So it's so cool to see, uh, in many ways, a faithful adaptation that then really smartly removes a bunch of meandering side plots, reduces the role of certain characters that aren't as interesting, pushes some stuff out to the second movie, and really focuses in on a story that they wants to tell for this movie. Um, so I think just as an adaptation, it's absolutely incredible. And, you know, it, it takes all the best stuff from the book, right, and focuses on that. Um, there's so many scenes we could talk about. The one that I that just really stood out to me this time, and I put some Instagram stories out from it, was the moment where Michael gets the gun from the bathroom and assassinates the two, the cop who's corrupt and the other guy, uh, you know, the, the, the other mobster who's behind everything or everything up to that point. Maybe not fully, but he's one of the upper people of it. 
anyway, um, that scene is incredible. The way it uses silence and the rising sound of the train passing by. Um, the, it, it's just a stunning, the way the light looks, the red of the glowing neons in this, this scene. Uh, it's um, absolutely stunning. One of the best scenes ever. Uh, absolutely love it. And I'll let you talk about it, man. You're the film guy. <laughs> talk to me about The Godfather. Yeah, Francis Ford Coppola took all of film history to this point blending all of these these artists that he's a that he's a fan of and he's turning it into something that he's that he knows in in some ways uh to, like kind of leaning into his culture and expressing um like a history that also is showing that like times are changing and constantly times are changing like um Corley Vito is is an older man at this point and he is so accustomed to the way that things have been done and the right way that things have been done and you just you, there's certain things you don't do and you stick by family and you do all these other things and these young upstarts to make their name in the world are not willing to go along with those lines and he's realizing that like in his day quote unquote like that's not how things were done and as time changes and they get into drugs and things like that it gets exactly. out of hand. his resistance to get into narcotics is one of the key things that sets everything off right like but he rightfully identifies like this stuff is going to ruin us it's going to get us destroyed by the police it's going to be too hot for us we need to just stay with gambling and like these other vices that are you know often looked at looked at, you know aside you know the people are willing to look the other way but narcotics are not that they're too dangerous and yet the magnet of that like he can't resist that um and, and and honestly sunny speaking up in that meeting shows weakness it shows that the the next the, that the air is more open to the idea of drugs and so it signals and maybe that kicks everything off right like sunny himself speaking up in that meeting like there's so many little moments i was noticing this time that are just so brilliantly written and a lot of that stuff's right out of the book yeah so even as like i have a lot of criticism criticisms of that book a lot of what makes The Godfather great is right out of the book. Um, right. So it's, it's really incredible stuff. Seeing Vito resistant to the drugs, knowing that they like this is the beast they know, this is the beast that they can handle. Yes, they could be more successful, but they're they're taking on more risk. And what that means for the family, which is always what the unit comes back to for Vito. It's always about putting the family first and yeah. making sure that people, uh, everyone's safe. Family, like favors, like the, 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 the value of those is at the heart of this movie. So just starting out with incredible characters and then you genuinely one of the most well shot well edited like all in all just taking all filmmaking elements and techniques and blending them all together to create this saga i mean unbelievable mm. just the godfather part one and part two it is the scale of a story like this and the, the emotional journey that you go through with this entire family it is untouchable in my mind it and is it's showing a culture too with the sicilians and the italians and yep. it's showing and it's almost arcane well, that's what in I mean, a way like, like the whole idea that like you know, I, I, he can't he can't say no on the day of his daughter's wedding. Like it's such a weird thing, and it, like yeah. I love that it leans into all of that. And like Sicily is such an important part of this story, where we have this like whole sequence where Michael goes to Sicily and like reconnects with his roots. And mm -hmm. and like, that's what I was saying before is like this is Francis Ford Coppola like tapping into his culture. He did, he's not a mobster that I know of, but he is highlighting the Italian culture and the Sicilian culture yeah. in ways that like. You know, there's been prejudice. And a against... lot of that's from the book. Talk about adaptations. Like Mario Puzo, like knew that world. I, I don't remember how much he was involved in it, but he knew it and like brought it to life. Yeah, and, and this is like looking at like a, a Godfather versus like a Goodfellas. Like you're seeing two different looks at like the mobster sort of crime syndicate family kind of thing, and it, it like. Martin Scorsese has that biting look at it. 
And it's almost like this, the Godfather is looking at it with like rosy glasses and showing you the, the, like the good side of it. Like you said, you're rooting for a veto. Whereas yeah. in like a Scorsese film, often you're like, all these people are terrible. Um, yeah. And just like, there's something to that, um, the richness of family and all the other stuff that's in that's But it also like, story. how cool is it then that the second, that the, the, really the main character, Michael Corleone, yeah. he's not that. He starts out likable, but he gets into really scary villain territory pretty quickly. Absolutely. And maybe we're rooting for him at the end because he's getting his vengeance. But even as he's gone to this town in Sicily where like all the men are just gone or dead because of, because of vendettas is what's said. Mm -hmm. And yet that doesn't dissuade him like he he is out for vengeance. And we have that just climactic, you know, just amazing sequence where he's at the baptism and his mortal soul is sort of in the balance as we're seeing him take out all the other heads of the family and the guy in <laughs> in Vegas to boot um, and then offing his own uh, his own traitor in, in his midst um, in just the most brutal ways. Um, and he's the mastermind of it all. And that really cements him as the, the, the second coming, the, the, the heir, right, of Vito. But he's doing it in a different way. He's not Vito part two. He's a very scary, different version and a more modern version that is going to be more equipped to handling the modern um, sort of challenges of, of running this crime family, even if he is maybe doomed for failure. Um, but it's, uh, he is positioned perhaps in a way that, that Vito wasn't. And I love that final conversation they have um, where Vito just out and out predicts everything that's going to happen. He's like, I'm just sitting here, you know, it seems like I'm completely checked out and I'm, you know, drinking wine and playing with my grandkids. But also the guy who comes to you and tells you that there's a meeting, he's the traitor. And like, you know, like he, he has like it all p figured out exactly what's going to happen and tells him it, you know, it, it's amazing moments and just amazing scenes. I, I really, really enjoyed watching it this time in a way that I don't even think I did the first time. It was amazing. Uh, again, it's it's kind of one of those untouchable films and it exists in a space that like kind of, I don't know, it gets outside of any sort of ranking system. So this is this whole process that we're about to go through. I wish we could mm -hmm. just end the conversation and be like, all right, oh, those are our six and that's it. But like having the narrative <laughs> I know, right? is going like, to be- How do we cut these? We're going to. Well, let's, let's get to the sixth one. That way we can get to the difficult process. Cause I know we got one more. Sixth one, uh, again, talk about mastery over the the- cinematic techniques and things like innovating and uh, coming into a space and making it your own. The next, the next person that we're covering is uh, Stanley Kubrick with The Shining, um, at, adapted from, from Stephen King's The Shining. Um, we've talked about Deserves this. Deserves another poor just in, in you know, <laughs> recognition. <Lawrence. laughs> um, we've, we bring it out all the time because we talk about the idea of these two strong visions from Stephen King and from Stanley Kubrick and famously St Stephen King did not like this film. Yeah. I don't I don't buy it. That's bullshit. He there's no way he can't see like the I think he genuinely richness. doesn't like it. I I disagree with you there. I just think that, you know, he's biased, but I think he does genuinely to not see for his to not see the richness and appreciate a Kubrick film made from your work like I, I don't know. Maybe they're butted heads and they don't, they didn't get along or something like that. But see again, this is like cutting edge stuff, right? Like he's he's utilizing like steady cam to follow around uh, Danny Torrance in the in the overlook on his big wheel. He's like it, it's so fluid. It's so I mean, talk about like we talked about atmosphere with um, the, the thing, the atmosphere of the Overlook Hotel and the score that plays and the way that paralleled, honestly, like uh, it's it, it is the most overbearing I think environment you can put yourself in in film. Um, everything is is putting you on edge. Attention think, to detail is taken to a whole nother level when you're talking yeah. about Kubrick. 
Exactly. <laughs> so he he's like famous for the number of takes he'll do, the things the things that he's setting up in frame, the, the amount of time it takes to set up his sets and his lighting and all the things that he does and all the things that go into his vision. Um, I just think a lot about like what he's doing to build tension in this film. Like I, I was about to say, the there's a scene when Wendy is like opening a can a jar of like fruit or something and then we cut to uh like a title card for the next day out of nowhere just like a crescendo of noise happens and it's like nothing happened it's just to yeah. fuck you up it's just to, like <laughs> completely put you on edge and the way that like everything is so unhinged and so unpredictable just like jack torrance is jack torrance yeah wendy could come in and danny could come in and he could be in a good mood he could be in a bad mood he could be in a fucking trance staring at the wall um he's so unpredictable and so unhinged and so dangerous and that's what like all of the filmmaking techniques and the location evoke and it's a movie that is a, is a about and really at the heart of the book is also about this it's about abuse it's about abusing a substance and about abusing your family and the people that you love and jack torrance is at the heart of that as a character who in in king's book which by the way absolutely brilliant um Maybe my favorite. <laughs> I, I recently <laughs> read the Mis Misery book and said that that might be my new favorite. I don't know. It's hard to dethrone The Shining. Absolutely incredible. I think it is one of his absolute masterworks. And there's a reason I think he loves it so much because he, he identifies so much with Jack Torrance, Stephen King, that is, and his struggle with alcoholism and the things that he doesn't like that it makes him do, that it, that it brings out in himself. And he redeems Jack Torrance in the book. Jack Torrance has to be turned into a pretty much a freaking zombie by the Overlook. Um, at the point at the point where it, it smashes his face to where he's basically unconscious and now it's just animating his body. Whereas the Jack Torrance in this film is is like unhinged from the start, but it's telling a slightly different story. And it, it's and it's like leaning into that and like the the fright of like a character who is already dangerous, who is being now just twisted beyond and like maybe his inner evil is being brought out by the by the overlook and and now he becomes both the monster of this of this uh film but also like i don't know just this manifestation of something supernatural um even if even if at his heart he's a very human uh and, and, and doing something that's very human so i don't know it's it's really incredible but and speaking of adaptation, it's a big change and, and um, it's going to come down, I think, on how you feel about some of the changes, right? Like a lot of the characters we don't learn as much about. Wendy is very different in the movie. Um, her she's a, such a strong character in the book. But the, a lot of these changes, I, I think, really work because Kubrick realized he didn't have time to get into all of that. And he had to focus it in more. And he had a very specific kind of story he wanted to tell. You kind of mentioned some of the stuff with the Stephen King story. So I, I obviously I came down in the in the film episode that I liked the film more than the book. And I, I think I've kind of come to the realization as to what I like more. And honestly, it's what we've been talking about a lot in the last couple of weeks. And we talked about it today. Kubrick add, adds layers of ambiguity. He I think that like Stephen King has a story that you can follow the character and you know exactly what's going on the whole way. Kubrick's film is so much more inter interpretational. There is so much left to the viewer to decide. And the psychological like depravity that's going on, the, the, the descent into madness that, that Jack Torrance has, I think is more interesting. And I understand that Stephen King felt close to it and felt like maybe that's an insult to him to have him like be the full-on villain. There's no redemption for Jack Torrance in the movie. Right. And I think that makes it more interesting to analyze the character psychologically, to think about like, 
it all this is all it took for this person to crack and you can say was it that was it the overlook was it the isolation and the overlook obviously that's kind of in stephen king's story as well but as time goes on it's different in the overlook obviously danny has the shining and maybe some of that's feeding the hotel and having some of these ghostly um like uh, images to to appear in these 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 people that are still there but i really do think that like this jack torrance could have done it either way and and that's kind of fascinating as well it's like there are clear moments when the overlook is influencing him and talking to him and opening doors and doing things that kind of break the rules but it keeps it so ambiguous again that like you don't know and then just to, to open this can of worms the level of symbolism and <laughs> yeah. the, just the level of like uh richness that's there to interpret in his film there's endless documentaries endless like write-ups critical uh write-ups of of this work that that will tell you 25 different interpretations of what's happening here and i find that to be like really interesting storytelling yeah, it's really cool um and talk about scenes like you know moments i i think um and, and performances to me uh jack nicholson as jack torrance uh here is it's career defining it's it's what people are always going to think of he's amazing in this movie and to me the scene that that comes to mind i mean obviously there's the axe to the to the bathroom um, mm -hmm. But I think the one that really comes to mind is when he is stalking after Wendy and oh, she's yeah. backing up the stairs and just the, the performance he gives there is stunning and it's chilling and it's just so incredible. Um, what a, what a, what a sequence and, and uh, you know, many ways right out of the book, but um, it's, it's something about the performance that really just transcends, I think. And I think that the foil to the Jack Torrance of Shelley Duvall as Wendy she's like vulnerable and yeah. and compassionate and she's all those other things that like she's the rational minded person in this in this situation and you feel pity for her because he is such a fucking maniac he's a maniac yeah. he's crazy and uh under like, see, under celebrated uh yeah. performance well she gets hate in this movie and she does not deserve it she's actually really incredible she's really i will grant movie. that i think wendy in the book is a stronger character but the performance we get from shelly duvall is incredible in this yeah. movie and talking about Nicholson, I, I just I wrote down I, every time I watch it, I find something, some little tweak in the performance to to key in on differently. The way that he he is able to manipulate his face, the crazy smile that he has, the yeah. way that he um, yeah, just like certain decision making processes that he has to like represent that character well and like you've seen that behind the scene footage of him like amping himself up for the for the bathroom sequence like oh, yeah. it's so scary and it's so intense and like but also like the thing that goes into his art right and that's mm -hmm. why I, I give that bonus point for a truly stand-up performance like that and that this movie would definitely get it here speaking of like should we move into my point system i just want to go over maybe maybe real quick where i rated all these movies and that can maybe kind of open the sort of set the table sure it'd be funny yeah. if we immediately agreed on which ones go in and this we just ended in the next minute or two it would be amazing so i, I do kind of want to like explain my thinking my highest ranked movie adaptation was the godfather out of all six um it got a perfect score across the board it got a 10 out of 10 for expressing what i said was amazing from the book it took the best parts of the book brought them to the movie it has entire passages that you would have thought would only work in a book because it's a huge monologue and yet amazingly performed. 10 out of 10. Changes, 10 out of 10. There's so much bad stuff in that book that needed to get cut. <laughs> There's a whole sequence with a surgeon and a doctor and it is just fucking awful and sexist and you know, there's there's plenty of still sexism in this movie, but like it is just a you know 
pales in comparison to what is in this book. So many smart changes, uh, you know, huge, long, not very interesting parts where we're in Vegas, um, you know, just like focusing on this Fontaine character for a really long period of time and like cuts all of that. Like there's so many smart changes made. I said 10 out of 10. Result, obviously 10 out of 10. One of the best movies ever made. And then it got both of my bonus points. Culturally, historically significant. Absolutely. Includes iconic individual performances. I think there are several here that rise to the level. And this is a, I'm holding this to a very high level of esteem to whether or not it actually gets this point. It has to be a really iconic moment. It has to be a career defining. I think there are actually several in this movie. So this one gets the bonus point for it. So this was a, 32 out of 32. You couldn't have gotten any more points on my on my scale, and it, it got them all here. Yeah. So that's my my number one contender for I think is going to make it. I, it and if I were going to say a movie that I think I'm going to fight the hardest for making the top three, it's probably The Godfather. Would you argue that? I'm not going to argue it. I I This was such a hard thing to do, but when I mm-hmm. think about The Godfather, and granted, this is The Godfather Part 1. It's mm-hmm. just the Godfather part one. Which, by the way, I, I need to watch rewatch part two. I think I prefer part one, which is like almost controversial to say because I know a lot of people love part two so much. And part two was great. I need to rewatch it and like really I actually kind of want to like soon because I want to like compare what's fresh in my mind. But I Vito in like, I don't know, like Marlon Brando is Vito. Like, it's so good. It's something that like just sets this movie apart to me. I don't know. It's almost impossible to argue with. I could watch this movie at any time. I will always be drawn in. It absolutely encompasses like everything that storytelling can be. It's doing it at such a high degree. Um, and so for those reasons, I definitely have it in my top three. So I think this one's in. This one's, <laughs> I think, I think we this can say probably in, this yeah. is going to be one of the three. All right. Now it gets a little more dicey. Okay. So let's, let's maybe move down the line. I here. think these next ones I'm going to hold off saying if I agree or not. I just want you to okay. get all your stuff out on the table and we can go from there. I will explain my thinking a little bit, but I'll try not to too long. So Fellowship of the Ring was my next highest scoring it got a 31 out of a possible 32. So I gave it a 9 out of 10 for expression. Only because I know there is a contingent of people, and I can see it, who there's something about Tolkien and him not focusing on the action and him focusing on the history and him focusing on the songs and the texture and the travel log and the appreciation of, of nature and it's a slower story. And in some ways that doesn't completely come across. And it, this is one of my favorite movies and I'm splitting hairs here. So I gave it a nine out of 10 on this. You know what I mean? I just docked one point because I think there is something essential to Tolkien. That is the magic of reading those books. And that's why I still recommend people read the books who have seen the movie, because there's something there that didn't make it across just a little bit. Um, And so that's why I docked a point. I said 10 out of 10 on changes, though, because I think the changes were smart and they made for a better movie. Um, I, I, you know, I won't belabor it, but I think the 10 out of 10 result was 10 out of 10. Absolutely incredible movie. Um, And then I gave bonus points for both. We've talked about how it changed movie making um, culturally significant, historically significant. Absolutely. And I gave my plus one for Ian McKellen as Gandalf specifically. I think there's a lot of amazing performances here, but that to me is the one that is career defining that he is the heart of this movie in so many ways and in all these movies in so many ways. Um, he, when he shows up on screen, it is, it is like one of those performances that you will never forget. It is incredible. So I, that earned the bonus point for me and got it to 31. Cool. <laughs> Do you want to say anything about it no. before I move on to the next one? Or? No comment. <laughs> I mean, I assume you also agree. Amazing. I agree. Um, but where, where, where it stacks. Yeah. Okay. So my next one um, working my way down was Jurassic Park. 
It got 30 points for me. So I gave it a 9 out of 10 on expression. Um, much the same way, and I think there was a certain thing lost from Tolkien's book. I think there's a little bit lost of this sort of more epic, large scope adventure. There's so many more dinosaurs. They've breached the island. They've gotten off. There's just something about the Crichton novel that is really special. And this feels like a different version of the story enough to where I look at that book and I say, there's something there that like people should really go to the book. It's really interesting. And as much as I liked a lot of the changes, there were some things I missed. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I docked at one point. I felt like for the same reason that I was doing it for fellowship. Um, I just missed something there. Um, it's hard to put my finger on. It's just because there was so much good stuff in the book. Um, it was hard to get it all across. Um, but I thought the changes were brilliant. Once again, 10 out of 10. Result, brilliant, 10 out of 10. Now, for bonus points, I only gave it the plus one for the historical significance. I didn't give it for, for performance. And maybe that's a, something you could argue, but um, we've already talked about why it was so significant. But I felt like there's a lot of great performances here, but I didn't think there was like one transcendent sh standout that defined their career. Um, if I was going to give it to anybody, it would be Ian Malcolm. Okay. But again, I can understand why you wouldn't. Um, yeah. Just you see what I'm saying, though? And yeah. that, that's the distinction I'm making. Like, there's great performances here, but I'm not giving that bonus point unless there's something just yeah. truly monumental going on. And I, I don't see that here as much as I like a lot of the performances. So I withheld that point. That's one of the reasons why it ended up at 30. Mm. And then now we get into my bottom three, which may be more controversial um, because I'm going to have to explain why I knocked them. <laughs> um <laughs> I have three movies tied for 29 points. <laughs> nice. So in no particular order, um, I, I have um, The Shining. I knocked this all the way down to an 8 out of 10 for expression. The reasons we talked about, about how much I love this book and how there is, I think, something to Stephen King's complaints. There's something from the book that didn't make the transition. Now, you could say that's because Kubrick wanted to make a different kind of story. And I agree with that. But when we're talking about an adaptation of an iconic book, I can see there being frustration with what's left out, with what didn't make it into the movie. And so that's why I knocked a couple points off of this one. That's my, it's my eight out of 10 on expression. Changes, I said nine out of 10. And that's mostly because there's a couple of them where I didn't love, like I didn't love some of the changes made to Wendy. Um, there's certain, like Dick, having Dick Halloran die, I think works better in the context of the story he wanted to tell. But it also like plays into that old you know Hollywood stereotype of killing off the only black character, um, and and it's that's kind of unfortunate. There's just certain things I don't know. It it brought me down to a nine out of ten. I wasn't as on board with all the changes being made. The result, however, is a ten out of ten. <laughs> it's an absolutely amazing movie. All that being said, um, and it got bonus points from both categories for me: cultural significance, historical significance, and iconic performance we already talked about with Nicholson um, and, and, you know, you can maybe argue others, but I think he's the, the real standout here. So it got the two bonus, which brought it up to 29. My other 29s, I got Blade Runner 29. Again, I said eight out of 10 on expression because if we're talking about it as an adaptation of Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, it's kind of a weird one. It kind of abandons a lot of the book. It has a slightly different focus. Um, and yet it, it does amazing things. But like, if you're like a true Philip K. Dick fan who wants this like faithful adaptation, this ain't it. It's very different. Um, you might still love it and many probably do, but you recognize that it is not faithful at all. Um, and a lot of the changes I think were for the better. So I did end up giving it a 10 out of 10 on the changes that were made. I, I docked one point from the result and that might be controversial, but <laughs> I want to bring up the fact that there are like seven different versions of this movie 
The final cut only came out in like 2007. A lot of people have seen different versions of this movie. They've seen the terrible voiceover version. Um, and then also it's a weird fucking movie. It's slow paced. It's not going to be for everyone. If I'm talking about a viewing experience and like having fun and really just being swept up in a movie, it's like, I don't know. It's just like kind of slightly knocked a point for me. It's not quite on the level of a Jurassic Park or a The Shining or some of these other that are 10 out of 10 viewing experiences. I knocked it down to a nine. Um, you might argue with me on that one because I know how much you love this movie, but I, that's personally where I was at. And then it got both points, both bonus points here again. Um, I, I said Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty, um, but I could see the argument for uh, for Harrison Ford. But um, And then also just the fact that it basically started a whole new subgenre in, in cyberpunk. That earns it a point in and of itself. So that leaves the thing. Uh, let's talk about that. I said expression of the original. I think this took everything that was great about the book and put it in this, this version of the movie. I give it a 10 out of 10. Um, I think what was left in the, in the story was like properly left should have been left. It wasn't that good. Um, again, kind of like what happened with the Godfather. It took all the best stuff and put it in there. Um, I said changes um, nine out of 10. And that's only because um, I think Carpenter gets a bit, caught up in his delight in the gore and in the the gross out. And that's going to be a highly subjective thing for people and whether or not they like that. But he really brought that. Like, he, he added that to this story. And I like it overall, but it does gross me out a little bit. Um, so I don't know. Ultimately, that combined with a couple other just minor changes, I, I ended up going down to a 9 out of 10. Um, as much as I like it, I, I, it's a little more debatable. Um, and then the result was the other thing. I ended up knocking this by a point. Um, to me, this this movie, the fact that it has no women in it is a little bit of a frustration for me. Um, the fact that it, these characters, while interesting and varied, there's no one true standout among them that is like a truly iconic. Even McCready, I don't really know much about him. He's like a helicopter pilot, and he's you know throwing his whiskey on a computer at the start, and he's like hyper masculine, but like not the most interesting character of all time. Um, and as much as I love this movie, I felt like putting it up against the best of the best that we've ever talked about, like the Godfather and the fellowship of the ring. It just didn't feel like it was quite on that level. Yeah. So I knocked that point off and then I gave it the cultural historical significance, practical effects like we talked about, but I didn't think any one performance stood out to earn that plus one point there. So yeah. that, that got that one to a 29. So to me, those three were all tied at 29. Um, so to me, those are the three, but I, I want to see if you want to make the argument against uh, against those being the three and, and, and which one you think. Yeah, so so much to react to here. Um, I assume that those top three scoring ones are your top three to go and be inducted, right? They are. I, you know, and again, like I don't want to put it all on the numbers, but it was a yeah. way for me to like to settle in my own mind yeah. where I was at. Yeah, because I was going to say, I, I like that you did it this way, but I, I don't think analytically that way with in terms of numbers. It's more of like the feeling that I'm getting from these films. And, and it's in that way, it makes it almost impossible to parse, which is why I see why you went with the numbers. But yeah. <laughs> there's things that I agree with and things that I don't. There's, there, so um, starting off, Fellowship did make my list of of possible three that go in. And it just has to do with the moment in time and so many of these things that we've talked about already. So for us to agree on that front and for the sake of time, know that I love this film and I think that it should make it in. We can we can kind of hash that out and make sure that we're confirmed on that. And then so it's I have like Godfather and Fellowship are confirmed. So really, it's just the number three spot. Yes. 
but I have three okay. that are that are all kind of jockeying there. Yeah, and yeah. The one that you have is maybe my least likely to make it in. So you have Jurassic Park. I have Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, you have Jurassic Park, and my two are Blade Runner and The Shining to make it as a third. And honestly, okay. I'm still kind of not convinced which way I want to go with it in, in some sense. So just to give it its moment, you you agree about the thing though. Like we both agree, great. We we made the the argument. We think that one is I would have loved to put it in and I think that this movie is so watchable. I think that like yeah. outside of the gore stuff, is that something that turns you off? That's that's, you know, it, it, kind of still watch it anyway and close your yeah, eyes yeah. Maybe for those bits because it's so it's such a fun watchable film. It, I mean, this is probably a Hall of Fame adaptation. It just yeah. it's not going to be this first ballot. It's not going to be in this right. inaugural class. So we're, we'll set it aside. It's it's a great movie. It's a great adaptation. But yeah. we're going to focus on these other ones now. So Jurassic Park, you, you made a comment as you were kind of um, going through all of these. And I, I think where we're differing is I think that a weird movie that doesn't necessarily speak to everybody is something notable and something that should mm. be seen because it's kind of its own piece of art. Whereas like if if just because something is maybe easier to go along the ride with doesn't, in my mind, make it as artistically significant. Now, I, I've said how much I love Jurassic Park. I would. Yeah. I, it should be in the Hall of Fame. There's no full question caveat. About it makes that. it so. It's so funny because it makes it seems like we don't like these. It's like whenever you're criticizing, right? It's like no, 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 no. We're criticizing from a place of love. We love all these movies. But both the the uniqueness of a Shining and a Blade Runner to me, yeah. feel like like okay. So Jurassic Park is similar to Jaws. I can't think of anything that Blade Runner is similar to, at least yeah. like at, at the time of its release. And right. in that way, paving new ground, creating a world that was like so wholly new in every way and asking really heady questions, like you said, asking questions that challenge viewers and challenge people to think in new paths and new perspectives. I think Jurassic Park does that as well. But I just think that Blade Runner does it in a way that I hadn't seen before. And what I, what I feel like it means to the sci-fi community, it is like about yeah. as high a peak as you can get for what it set out to do and executed well and left that ambiguity and left all the things that I think make for like complex, rich storytelling that beg for a rewatch. Okay, so but what about this weird like the cuts? The I'm, different I'm cuts. holding a little bit of a thing against it for there being like seven different versions of this movie. Well, there's you like, can make the argument and I, I, I we didn't say, say this, yeah. but like Fellowship of the Ring also has two different versions, the theatrical and extended cut. Like you could argue that that's kind of weird that, that yeah. exists for Fellowship. And like we love the extended cut, but like maybe you could make the argument that the theatrical cut is better and that the sense that it like focuses more on like the core parts of the story. I don't agree with that, but I think some people might prefer the theatrical cut of these movies it's hard for me to hold something that was out there's of, like a bad cut of Blade that's what i was there. gonna say though it's <laughs> hard for like me to the... hold what was out of ridley scott's hands against him though it's not a part of the film in that sense like to me it's like a distribution thing or you know what i mean i think of it in like a different term like i um, guess i don't know enough of the story behind it because to me like at times as much as i don't like that bad voiceover it felt like the movie was like leaving space for voiceover and it was deliberately not doing it it was like it was it was just so quiet and we got such little explanation about anything that I kind of felt like was this movie fully made thinking there was not going to be any voiceover like I do, think do so we know that I think so okay. I think he got locked out of the edit is from what I understand is like when they got to a certain point they were like put VO in and he was like no and they were like well then we're going to do it without you okay yeah from yeah, from what I understand it, obviously that's upsetting um it gets away from you maybe that has some something to do with the original success of the film uh, you know, I will but, say, okay, so another another point of criticism I'll give sure. for Blade Runner. 
Deckard to me is such a like foil of a, like he's just like a blank slate of a character, mm. and that works for the story we're telling. But like I never got a good sense for like who he is and what he cares about. Um, and then his whole romantic moment with Rachel is so aggressive and strange. Yeah. Um, where he like forces her to kiss him and like commands her to say that she wants him and like all this like kind of just weird dynamic yeah. um, that made me uncomfortable. And then like overall the character, he's so, because he's so neutral at times, I'm like, I, I'm putting a lot onto him as a viewer because I'm, I'm, I'm ascribing stuff to him, I, especially because I knew some stuff from the book, but like, as a movie, it doesn't tell us a ton about him. He's like, and and that works for him being a replicant. Yeah. Against, I was going to say that could that plays into the possible mystery. We don't know for sure that he's a replicant. I guess it's technically, one of the things that makes this a weird movie to watch because I don't feel like you can get anchored in the character. Like I don't know that you feel like you're rooting for him as he's sort of brutally gunning down some of these replicants. Like, and he has to slowly develop empathy for them. But like him killing that you know exotic dancer with the snake and everything, like it feels pretty awful. He just assassinates her. Like, and, and she wasn't doing much. Like she seemed like she was fine. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's, I don't know. Like, I like this movie a ton. Like, don't get me wrong. It's just like, I'm a little more conflicted about it than I am about these other movies. I could see it. Yeah. I, so I guess that means that like, we're, Let's move on to The Shining and we'll revisit Blade yeah. Runner at that point then. And I think just, you're going to you're gonna understand. Like, I'm just yeah. coming down a little bit more on Stephen King's side here. Like, right. as much as I love this movie, I think there's something to be said that as an adaptation, it left some stuff behind that it's such a great book that yeah. this, this version is missing. I don't know if it's even missing it. It's yeah. just like fans of the book. I mean, what's interesting here is that like I'm kind of coming down on the other side of it saying that like, I think that those changes improved the character because I felt like he was more interesting. And, and those, like I said before, the layers of, of like ambiguity that are there that you're left to kind of pull out of the character. I will say getting, getting rid of the hedge monsters was a good, that was a good choice. (laughs) Those were not that scary. They were a little bit scary in the book. They would not have been scary in a movie. (laughs) No, but, uh, I, you know, as much as I love Stephen King as an author, I do feel like he is giving you all the information because that's kind of what you expect out of a book. You get the internal monologue, the internal thoughts often of, of your main characters and things like that. Um, and you get some omniscient POV stuff sometimes. I, it's because I'm a film person too, is because I like watching and interpreting what's happening. And mm. this movie, there's so much of that, especially with Jack Torrance and tr- trying to figure out like, is he seeing what he thinks he's seeing? Is he drinking? Because I don't know that we see a ton of him actually drinking. We I see him with drinks in his the, hands. Yeah, we see him with drinks in his hands. But I don't. True. I can't think of many times that he's actually putting it up to his lips and drinking. So there's all of those elements of like, where is he getting the liquor when there is nothing there? They took everything out of the hotel. Where, it, like, is he just like staring at the wall because he's crazy? Is he truly? Has he always been had these demons underneath where he was planning? He was thinking he could. He had the capacity to kill his family and. Okay, man. I mean, like, I, I love this movie. So it's like, I don't want to argue this. Like, I, but I know we need to. So it's like, I, I agree with all of that. How, how can you make the argument? And I want to hear you do it. Yeah. Over Jurassic Park. What is yeah. it about Jurassic Park that would, that would keep it out? Is there any, because it has to make, like, right? To make The Shining in, Jurassic Park has to come out. So Jurassic Park is incredible, right? It's it's definitely more on the side of what the broadly appealing side that I was talking about. I think The Shining lands on the side of like artistic interpretive mm-hmm. film that you're left to be challenged with, that you're left to figure things out. Whereas Jurassic Park is an incredible ride. 
you enjoy it so much there are so many things about it that that scream art and commerce and like it's a blockbuster it's it's doing all of those things and it's reaching a broad audience because of that but i feel like when you're talking about art and trying to like see who is doing something new that's pushing it along jurassic park feels a lot like jaws and the shining feels like nothing i've ever seen before and kubrick can do things with the camera and he can visually tell you a story that even Spielberg, I think, can't at times. Feels like his other masterwork, <laughs> you know, with Jaws, right? Like, interesting. Uh, okay, uh, okay, yeah, okay. Um, I can see the argument. It's hard for me to hold it against Jurassic Park for being so broadly appealing, though, and it feels like that's what we're doing. It's like we're giving yeah. more points to the to the thing that's going to appeal to less people, be a little yeah. bit more niche. I guess I guess like, let's let's get away from that and just say I feel that it's it's approaching it in an artistic pursuit that feels like it's challenging. Not necessarily that 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 like Jurassic Park has some heady stuff going on in it. I mm-hmm. I just think that like you you're never lost. You're so never left I to guess, interpret. Get, do you give any weight to Stephen King's criticisms? Are 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 you saying they those do not matter to you? I again I've always felt like he's so close to the material that he can't be unbiased. I think that Stephen it's one of Stephen King's best works but I also think that Stanley Kubrick made something that like Stephen King one of his best works do I think it's one of the best books to ever exist ever I don't know man I don't know like once you start thinking about all the literary books that are out there and all the well, things Well sure that... and, but that's that's the mass appeal versus cuz King like he 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 operates in this like magical sweet spot between being heady and like experimental and rich enough to appeal to people looking for that yeah but not so much that he distances himself from like the average reader correct yeah and he he writes stories with that are like scary enough and disturbing enough to appeal to the like hardcore horror fans and yet not so disturbing and so dark and so twisted that it leaves people behind like you could argue clive barker sometimes does like he just he's in this Goldilocks zone as a writer that makes him one of the best selling of all time and yet still an incredible writer. And I yeah. feel like that's the same. I'm, I'm making that argument for Jurassic Park in a way that it falls in that same territory of being that to me, The Shining, it almost pushes more into that niche er- territory where it, it, it is the, the fact that there's no redemption for Jack. Like there's certain things that maybe aren't as broadly appealing. Like, I mean, you will meet people who don't like the shining, right? Like it's, it's, I think, I think what it comes down to for me too, is like when I see someone take a risk, they're being, that's bold storytelling. And I think that like, there's no question that there are things in Jurassic park that are risky, but like Stanley Kubrick's on a fucking, he's out on a limb. He's creating something that like, maybe it doesn't cater to everybody and it doesn't necessarily have to, artistically is is making risks and pushing forward the medium and and making people think and like i i i would argue that this that the the obviously it didn't do like jurassic park numbers but this the shining has been seen by insane amounts of people like it's got to be one of the most uh popular horror films of all time definitely so okay so so to me you've made a more compelling argument for the shining than blade runner it seems to me like of the two, you're more passionate about The Shining being the one. It's funny to say because I don't know that I, I don't know that it's my preference. 
this is getting into the territory of like is it the best adaptation or is it james's favorite you know what i mean like i'm trying to parse there's only one slot james we gotta choose one movie i feel like the shining the shining is the one that i'm landing on but blade runner is so close to me and i think i prefer it as a film like i would rather watch blade runner than the shining again right now but the shining is a is a more rich and like i mean just filmmaking techniques the the performance by jack by uh jack nicholson like the what what it like the historical significance the references the homages like it's all there for the shining it is and it's what's so hard man it's like it would beat out so many other movies i just don't know that i can put it in over jurassic park (laughs) well then let me ask you this question can you put it in over fellowship or or the godfather no those two are untouchable to me right now those two are in is there okay so looking at my score for jurassic park is there something you would argue i got wrong yeah, let's go. To let's where go we, can, we can maybe, or you know what I mean? Like, is there something where I maybe gave it too many points or is it more just didn't give enough points to, to The Shining? So for Jurassic Park, I said nine out of 10 on expression. I docked one point because I felt like there was something in the book that was left behind just a little bit, just a little bit of the epicness of the book, the, the wide range of the book. Um, so I knocked one point there. I gave it a 10 out of 10 on changes. Maybe there's maybe you'd argue some of the changes made weren't 10 out of 10s, but I thought they were 10 out of 10 on result. Maybe you argue that. Maybe it's a 9 out of 10 for you as a result, but I think this is this is a perfect movie in many ways to me. Yeah. Um I gave it the plus 1 for cultural historical significance. We talked about, you know, the many ways in which it revolutionized filmmaking, revolutionized, you know, the, yeah. the blockbuster. I didn't give it the one for the for the performances and that ended up Yeah. Um, at 30 points for me you know what's funny is i i found the way that we can line up the points i think i do dock the result of jurassic park down to a nine and because it doesn't have the iconic performance the shining does have the the iconic performance and i would give the result a 10 they would then they would then swap positions but i'm thinking like jack torrance like the jack nicholson so to you the shining is just a slightly better movie ultimately i think like you know if we're talking about like the bonus points just to start there jack torrance that like the Jack Nicholson performance is better than any single performance in, in dress. I agree with that. I agree. Um, the result of nine, it's funny too, because like, if I'm, if I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit, I think that the changes in terms of like the scale focus Jurassic Park a little more like you, you giving it a nine there, I would almost give give it a a nine, but, but I gave it a 10 on changes. You know what I mean? So I agree that the changes were smart. It's just, it's more about like expressing what made the book great. I felt like there was something about the book that didn't, but you're almost arguing that maybe it should have been a 10 out of 10 which push it more into the thing you're making that that's why i said devil's advocate devil's advocate (laughs) i still think the shining over over jurassic park i i just think that it has more something you can't find anywhere else i think that that's what stanley kubrick delivers in his films and i think that's what he delivers in the shining okay so the other thing is like i'm part of multiple stephen king groups yeah people hate on the shining i'm telling you man people don't like it like stephen king fans will constantly hate on The Shining. I'm a big fan of the book. It might be my favorite Stephen King. I'd have to go like really think about it. They're they're almost like reflections of each other. <laughs> like I I don't I don't think of that as baggage that pulls down the, the adaptation personally. Yeah. It would be more controversial, I think, than putting in Jurassic Park. We put in The Shining, we're really putting our stamp on it and saying we as a podcast I would say discount we're, what Stephen King has said. We discount <laughs> the Stephen King fandom and we celebrate The Shining as one of the greatest adaptations to ever make it. And which we would do eventually anyway, because I think it's going to make it in. Yeah. But like as a as a first ballot inaugural class. Yeah. So Stephen King's going to be mad at us is what you're saying. He's going to be. I mean, potentially. <laughs> he potentially might be. I will say I don't think we're being controversial with our other two. I think that that 
the Godfather and Fellowship are very safe picks. And and that doesn't make me like them more. They just happen to be safe picks. <laughs> Correct. But I'm just saying like if if there was any if there was any leverage to saying like here's a controversial pick versus all three are like pretty pretty uh tried and true. We're not we're yeah. not shocking anybody with any of these picks, I would say. And The Shining wouldn't shock anybody either in my opinion because in terms of adaptations, like there are very few films that I can think of that based on on a book that do what the shining does in the in the case that stanley kubrick elevates material yes he changed it but he he takes it to a, a realm of like otherworldly filmmaking like he he's always pushing forward the medium like i mentioned before his use of lighting in this film is is innovative his use of steady cam i mean like the the locations using the locations as he did um just some of the stuff just is never going to leave the the zeitgeist in the in the language of film and like yeah. to me so 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 I'm with you man I'm with you but <laughs> 2001 space odyssey that if you had been arguing that with me right now you you might have won yeah For, you know in this person cuz like that's like the, the like, I don't know like the best like I've seen from him and like Spielberg like this is his best. Like we talked about like Jaws versus this, and we're talking about Spielberg's maybe best movie. And like, I know that's controversial to say, but best adaptation for sure. Like, you know, what's funny is my heart wants to just say, okay, let's go with Jurassic Park. But my mind is like Stanley Kubrick, Stanley yeah. Kubrick and the shining. I just, I don't know what to do. How do we break this impasse, man? Cause I'm adolescent. James is so upset right now. He's like, just go with Jurassic Park, man. It's the best movie. You've yeah. seen it the most well, in your that's lifetime. Like part of it for me too is like I'm like I think I'm championing that version of myself. Like I I think I think the headier part of me, the one that like wants to get into the minutia of filmmaking, looks at The Shining and says it's a superior film. But like, oh, there's just something about the magic of Jurassic Park that it feels like I'm underselling it to to, to yeah. not like. And just I don't know. I think something about this rewatch too, and like all the things I noticed, and that's the other thing is that I didn't rewatch Jurassic Park. You didn't rewatch The Shining, and I didn't <laughs> so. rewatch The Shining. I, I have seen The Shining a bunch of times, yeah. and you've seen Jurassic Park a million times. Plenty, yeah, but not recently. Oh, do I want to jump on it, or do you like who, <laughs> who's, who's jumping gonna, on the grenade? You're saying who's jumping on? Who's who's willing to compromise? I look at the end of the day, I would cave and let Jurassic Park in, but I'm gonna put a massive massive asterisk out there for our listeners and for everyone else that. Uh, the Shining will be in the next batch, and I'll fight tooth and nail to make sure that it, it makes it into uh, the Hall of Fame. And there's going to be some stiff competition, I'm sure, with like the added the added adaptations from the from the next year that become eligible. It's a to me, I'm like this is a travesty if we don't put The Shining in there. So, and, and part of me wants to go with you, man. Part of me wants to, and part of me wants to say like, no, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let The Shining in because I want to be the bigger man um, <laughs> and, and be the one to compromise. Um, but, he, but, but, but my argument against it is that I think making it a second ballot, cause I think it will make it in a second ballot acknowledges the controversy. And there's something about me likes acknowledging that controversy, right? Like, and, and, and like, it's, we're still saying it's one of the greats, but like, it's probably going to take a second ballot. I, something feels right about that to me. And then what also feels wrong about not putting Jurassic Park in is we left out Jaws from our top six because of Jurassic Park. And then for Jurassic Park not to make it, that means another year we're gonna have to consider maybe leaving out Jaws again. Yeah, and that movie should deserves to be in this discussion, I think, going forward. So that feels wrong to me. And and something so so as much as I I want to say I'll compromise. Like, <laughs> I'll I'll fully admit to when we were drafting our movies, like I wanted to draft Jurassic Park. Like I I just love watching that movie. I wonder if you had just seen Jurassic Park, if you if it might have made you feel a little different. 
Maybe, um, but and, I... And, and that's true for all these movies, yeah. you know, because I didn't watch the other ones either. So, But The Shining, man, uh, I just... <sighs> all three of these movies that we have cut are going to clearly be top contenders. We will revisit this in a year for our 2025 class, but I think for now, let's go ahead, drum roll, please. The inaugural class of the Ink to Film Adaptation Hall of Fame is Jurassic Park, adapted from the Michael Crichton novel, The Godfather, adapted from a Mario Puzo novel, and The Fellowship of the Ring, adapted from a J.R.R. Tolkien novel. Those are our three. That's our inaugural class. Yay! Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. Hopefully it this got was contentious fun. there at the end, man. I still feel kind of bad about it, um, but I knew it was going to come down to this anyway, right? We we always knew that three was going to be difficult. Oh, so I, I meant to say this early, but like, if you would like to congratulate us on 300 episodes, let us shout us out in the comments. Let us know your picks for these movies. Um, and then also leave us a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. I know we say that every time. But like that would be an awesome gift for us because I haven't seen that number move in a little while. And I know we got people listening and like I would just love to see that number move. And we read them like every one of these comments, every one of these reviews, we read them. Yeah. Um, I, I, I often post our reviews to, you know, our social media channels on Instagram, stuff like that. So I don't know. I'd love to hear that from you guys. Um, it's been so it's been amazing doing 300 episodes of this and talking about adaptations this long and feeling like I'm at the point now where like. I do know quite a bit about adaptations in the process, right? Um, yeah. It's been really fun. And and um, I know we've been, we were kind of focusing on this Hall of Fame thing. We didn't re really reflect on that much, but um, it really is incredible. And, and we're just so appreciative that people have listened this long and that uh, even if you're new to it and this is your first episode, you know, we're, we're appreciative for you giving us a chance. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, it's we're we're totally different people than we were when we started doing this. And I felt I feel like the so much growth personally through this. And I feel like connection with people that I never knew I would meet. Um, and we it, it is really humbling knowing where people are listening from when people write in reviews, just email yeah. us in. And, and tell us like that they're responding to what we're saying um, in a positive, negative way, whatever it is. I just like that people are listening and that people people are interested in what we have to say. And yeah, it, it is. It's been a you know, it's been a joy. It's been seven years, three hundred episodes. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like a crazy number that I never assumed we would make it to. But of course, like you know, I knew we were we were in for it. And uh, I, I feel like I've learned a lot, and hopefully, we've exposed people to like some of the things that we're passionate about yeah and that's that i agree that's been like one of the coolest things right um but i think how cool is it that we were also premiered like a new kind of episode just last just last week yeah um I, and that's something that i that i champion and the that i love about our podcast is you know we end every episode saying keep adapting and um at some point along the way we adopted that it wasn't there from the beginning and much in that spirit, I, I think we do adapt over time and we we tweak the way we do our episodes a little bit and we tweak things here or there and we keep changing. And um, I think that that's, that's the, a, a cool thing to do in the spirit of adaptation is just, just keep moving forward and keep finding new ways to iterate. But that's going to be it for our 300th episode and our Hall of Fame induction. Um, it ended up being a really fun one. Stick around to the very end where we're going to announce what's going to be next um, coming up. But I will say, if you would like to support us financially, I want to shout out our Patreon, patreon.com slash film. We have like almost 70 bonus episodes on there talking about, you know, extra, extra content, um, including our deliberations, how we arrived at our top six. So if you're curious about that, check out our Patreon. We'd love to have you over there. And make sure to connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. 
be sure to write Luke and tell him how much you think The Shining should have made the top three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me know. Let me know. We're on TikTok as well. Follow us on there. Uh, Blue Sky, we're on, Blue, we're on there now. Yep. Um, all right, man. Uh, I think all that's left to do is announce our next project, which we are going to be getting into Poor Things, which is a book I know very little about, a movie I know very little about, other than I think I saw a trailer. It looks really bizarre and weird. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about it, though. Um, it, it should be a strange one, and and I know it's getting a lot of buzz. Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos is a, is a filmmaker I've been like telling people about for a long time, and with this movie it's finally like broken through to like a, a different a level of, of exposure, I guess. And he like, yeah. now he's like nominated and this might win best picture. So uh, I'm really excited to get into this. And, and he's just a filmmaker that explores a really weird, you want to talk about unique and weird perspectives and spaces and things you're not going to get anywhere else. Yorgos Lanthimos is doing that right now. So it's back to our normal content, right? Back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, we are also coming up on our quarterly project, um, our, our, our first quarterly project of the year. So if you want to get those suggestions in, check that out. It's going to be a pinned comment or like a pinned post in our Patreon, and you can you can vote for what you want us to cover next. Um, and we'll start we'll start narrowing that down and narrow it down to a top four like in a week or so because we got to get on top of that. So get those suggestions in. All right, we've gone long enough. Until next time, keep adapting.